Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look to the cosmetic industry. This is episode 252. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. Valerie, did you notice that I changed the number there? Like last time we were doing episode 250, but I said 252. Because last week was really 251. We did 250s in a in a row. <laughs> oh, no. I, I hate when we do that. I don't know. Well, oh, 252, well. <laughs> and that's a palindrome. And you know what we like to do on palindrome days? The sunscreen show. That's right, the sunscreen show. Well, at least 252, that palindrome we do it then. On today's show, we are answering questions about sunscreen, specifically... What's the difference between Asian sunscreens and U.S. sunscreens? Should we be worried about UVC from fluorescent lights damaging our skin? What sunscreen does Valerie like? Uh, Looking forward to that. (laughs) Will the oils in a primer interfere with the effectiveness of your sunscreen? And how can a sunscreen with different ingredients have the same SPF? Lots of interesting questions there. And lots of sunscreen beauty science news but first valerie you were gonna give us your big announcement well you teased us last week so what what is your big new venture drum roll i launched a company called simply ingredients ah simply ingredients now that's for making food no, well, no. don't Google it just yet because that's what you'll see. Google hasn't picked up uh, the SEO on my website yet, but I have launched a company dedicated to sourcing the best ingredients around the world and sharing them with you. And not only sharing these ingredients with you, but teaching you how to make your own cosmetic products right in your kitchen. So the, the types of cosmetic ingredients that somebody might find like in products like the ordinary or something like that you're you're sourcing them and showing people how to make their own yeah a little bit so i have essentials things that every formulator would need on their bench glycerin beeswax preservation emulsifiers etc and then the really fun ingredients i call those actives and they're the really fancy things that you don't need in a formula but you want to add to a formula because they offer some attribute or they just feel uh really good and If I just get really excited about something and I can't stop talking about it for three weeks and Mr. Cosmetic Chemist is like, I don't care, please stop talking about this ingredient, (laughs) uh, I'm going to sell it because there's just so many cool things in the world. And I think it's really important for people to learn about where ingredients can come from and why palm-derived ingredients can be okay and what to look for when you want to have fun at home making stuff. Yeah, no, it sounds great. I think I might have to get some and um, and make some of my own stuff in my uh, my basement labs. <laughs> that could be yeah, very cool. Yeah, I thought, you know, we've always talked like, oh, we should make a product. But, I, you know, for me, this is a, r- really a hobby. I'm not leaving my day job anytime soon. This is really just an outlet for me. Uh, I really love what I do and I love ingredients. And it's just a way for me to share all that with everybody. Yeah, and it would be good to have... Uh, a more science-based person who uh, is sharing ingredients. <laughs> definitely, definitely, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we'll include a link to that, and uh, I encourage everyone to go and check that out. You know what my big news is now, Valerie? Is it beauty science news? No. <laughs> I got I got two new foster cats. Meow. Wow. Two. Are they twins? They are brother and brother and brother, I guess. Apparently. Or sister oh, and cool. sister. I, I don't know what they are, but they're a little older. Like one is eight and one is ten, and they're super shy but super friendly. It's like, <laughs> have they seen Porch Kitty yet? They have not seen Porch Kitty. Is Porch Kitty mad at you? No, no. Porch Kitty is coming every day. I mean, there's like a, two feet of snow outside, and Porch Kitty still trapes up to get its free food. I guess. <laughs> is Porch Kitty using the blanket yet? That you, the little cat bed that you made. Uh, the little cat shelter. Yeah, he, he goes in there every so often, but he's got his own spot, so you know, just sometimes <laughs> he'll use it. It's like it's a little flop house for him. <laughs> well, congratulations on the kitties, or you know, cats. Yeah, no, they're they're fun, and they're finally coming out from under the beds. <laughs> they, oh, good. They spend the entire day under the bed, <laughs> which is so strange. But all right, why don't we move on to some beauty science news, the sunscreen edition. Valerie, remember back in episode 246, we talked about that Pareto. You can't forget a name like Pareto, uh, because for me, it sounds like burrito, and I would remember a name like that. To me, it sounds like a, a nickname for a cat. Hey, Pareto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. The, the story here was that Pareto, and then now there's a few other sunscreen brands. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. these are all uh, Korean brands, but... Um, there's some independent testing going on demonstrating that the SPF claimed on the bottle is not uh, the SPF that these independent testing is doing. And that created, you know, quite a controversy and Pareto actually stopped selling their brand and these other brands that had the independent testing, they stopped selling too or, or put a pause on selling. Yeah, well, you have to with a, a PR incident like that. Yeah, exactly. Now, now I was on a webinar last week with a sunscreen expert, and so I threw this to her, and I said, well, you know, what what do you think is going on here? And she was of the opinion, uh, she's like, yeah, the independent testing, they're, they're not following, like, the full procedure of doing an SPF testing, and so what's probably happening is that the company that made it, they ran the full gamut of tests, and then they, you know, with the uh, the appropriate number of uh, replications and, su- and that such. But when this independent test comes through, you know, they don't run the test the same way and they get, it's not surprising they get different results. Yeah. So I think when you're saying, you know, br- brands doing the right testing, I think what we're talking about really here is big brands, brands that have the finances, the knowledge, and the wherewithal to invest heavily in multiple validations of an SPF level. Whereas small brands maybe don't have the resources uh, to do as much thorough testing. And there's nothing illegal or wrong about doing simplistic SPF testing. The guidelines are there. Brands are following them. But in certain product technologies that you have on the market, you probably need to do a little bit more work just to double check. Everything is okay. And sometimes this happens, as we can see with these independent studies. Yeah, and but I but I would want to point out that the independent studies, 
just because they ran one they did one trial of a one you know on one person's skin and they found <laughs> exactly, a difference it's yeah. like that's not surprising so even small companies you know they'll they'll run the proper things and they'll they'll get the proper number of subjects to do it whereas i don't think this uh, independent you know cop testing is really a full-blown testing because there would be it would be very expensive for uh not much point <laughs> oh so much money and two who knows if they're doing the necessary testing in vivo maybe they're just doing in vitro testing or doing some sort of quick read uh that's more economic whereas in, in the u.s at least um, in vivo testing on actual humans is recommended exactly well, Valerie, you got to the next story? Yeah, there is a new Shiseido technology. And actually, Shiseido, uh, it's funny they have this new technology because they also just sold off their personal care unit. Uh, <laughs> but they right. did develop, by the way, Shiseido puts out excellent papers, um, whether it's uh, skin or hair. I've always really enjoyed reading their scientists' work. Uh, but they have developed some new technology that allows for the use of titanium dioxide and zinc oxide as sunscreens to improve texture and reduce white cast. That's probably a, that's a big problem with those mineral sunscreens, as it were, right? Uh, oh, they, they yeah. They feel kind of gritty. I, I know, I, like, if I go golfing and I use a zinc and it gets in mm-hmm. my eyes and <laughs> that kind of hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it is a problem for consumers, but also for formulators, how to figure out not to make it gritty and to avoid leaving that white cast. Now, these are particles. And what Shiseido did was they figured out a better way to disperse the powders in oil. They dubbed the technology Smooth Protect Technology, a very forthright name. (laughs) And it has (laughs) resulted... They're like, hmm, what do we name it? It's resulted in more finely dispersed particles that felt better on the skin and were less visible. And what this will allow for them to do is create a higher SPF using less active ingredients. So a lower percentage of that zinc and titanium, and then they could still get the high SPF values. Interesting. Exactly. And maybe as a consumer, you're saying, hmm, well, if they're using less titanium dioxide and less zinc oxide, how are they getting a higher SPF? That's a good question uh, because we'll cover in this a little bit later. But yeah, protection <laughs> depends a lot on the size and the dispersal of those particles, right? SPF just isn't a number. <laughs> it's not a number. <laughs> hey, yeah. is this one of those technologies that's going to be like five to 10 years and we're going to see this? No, no, no. They're going to be debuting the technology in a new sunscreen in February in the Anessa Suncare brand line. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it does or if consumers even notice a difference. <laughs> my, my vote is probably the, la- the, the latter. <laughs> but we'll see. And, you know, yeah. you said the word February. Did you know February is the most misspelled month in the year? Hmm. Really? I, I don't Actually, know. Actually, yeah, I, maybe. It probably is, right? <laughs> Feb- February. February. <laughs> All right. We got one more story. And I only bring this, I just, I just read this on Eureka Alert. Um, they were looking at the uh, whether uh, sunscreens actually have a negative impact on coral reefs. Because, you know, you've seen, that's all the big hot thing in sunscreens, uh, selling products that are reef safe. And you get the little certified, I don't know, a fish or a jelly mm-hmm, or a, mm-hmm. a starfish or something. And, oh, it's reef safe. Well, 
you know, there's right now, the, and actually the government in some in Hawaii, I know Hawaii has banned certain sunscreen actives, mm-hmm. and parts of Florida have also, or at least they're going through that. And so that I'm sure consumers get the sense that, yeah, the reef safe is something. Well, according to this uh, review of the science that has been done, uh, researchers have said that, you know, there isn't a lot of great evidence or science-based evidence that the sunscreen actives are actually causing problems for reefs. In fact, the researchers concluded that while organic UV filters do occur in the environment, there is limited evidence to suggest their presence is causing significant harm to coral reefs. However, scientists did caution that based on limited information and data currently available, so it's a, it's a little premature to conclude that there is no problems, but uh, it's also premature to conclude that there is a big problem <laughs> that needs a reef-safe label on it. So Yeah, it's interesting because I think we've heard a lot of this over the last few years. All these laws are being created, and it's like, hmm, where's the science? Um, you know, so... I think we can see that there's some things pointing to it, things not pointing to it. And what's crazy is people are just still going forth like one side doesn't even get a chance to 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 stake its case. It's I guess that's how the world works though. Well, I'm gonna try to sometime get a debate about this with P. I'm gonna get an expert on both sides and we'll hear him hash it out. That 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 should be fun. <laughs> At yeah. least fun for me. <laughs> yeah, can't wait to hear from that. Well, Valerie, I think it's time for us to move on to the questions that were sent in. Ooh, some great sunscreen questions. First question. You know what? I've I've spaced in a bunch of audio questions. We got three audio questions today. Uh, wow. So let's let's start with Shay. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Shay from Normandy Park, Washington. I recently fell down the rabbit hole of Asian skincare. They really seem to rave about Japanese sunscreens. I'm currently trying one that I really like, but I'd like to know more about what makes Japanese or Korean sunscreens different from American sunscreens. Specifically, what are the differences in the UVA and UVB filters and the sun protection ratings? Asian sunscreens have an SPF rating and a PA rating that includes multiple plus signs. Are these sunscreens safe? Thank you. So we previously covered the different rating systems. Uh, remember that back in episode 213? We did, and again, lightly in episode 227. Well, well, yeah, we have. And so down the rabbit hole of the different sunscreens around the world. Uh, so uh, as far as I know, the primary difference between the U.S. and the Japanese or Korean sunscreen is pretty much the type of UV blockers that you're allowed to use. Now, everyone allows zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, but it's all those organic sunscreens, or as some people call them, chemical sunscreens. They're all chemical (laughs) people. (laughs) So I'm going with organic sunscreens because organic chemistry and such. Um, Those are the ones that, that people that have come under scrutiny. In the US, for example, there are only 16 approved sunscreens, and actually only eight of those are still currently uh, being either manufactured or allowed. 
So, wow. yeah, there aren't very many. And even those have come under scrutiny with uh, people worried about safety concerns. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it was last year the FDA said they need more evidence to approve safe and effective for all of the organic sunscreens uh, that have been approved. <laughs> so there is wow. that. Uh, now, titanium dioxide and zinc oxide have been declared safe and effective, so you don't have to worry about them. But Unless it's all the rest, right? uh, we're still looking for more data. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's because in the U.S., sunscreens are treated um, or regulated as over-the-counter drug products. So you just can't make anything and call it a sunscreen. Uh, it's really important that there's been copious amounts of studies and safety data um, done on ingredients to make sure that consumers are safe. Yeah, and as far as the the rating systems go, you know, pretty much in the U.S., there is only the SPF rating, uh, which covers UVB exposure. Now, um, there's also there's also movement afoot to get UVA. So when you see something that says broad spectrum, that presumably covers UVA. But I do want to stress that the final regulations in the U.S. aren't set. They keep doing the almost final, final versions. Uh, and I think 2018 might have been the last time they came out with a, like a revised update. And that's where they were proposing that there's a limit of an SPF 50 and also an inclusion of a UVA. But it, reality in the United States, the regulations are not quite set. Um, so we don't have a proper UVA, UVB. Well, we do have a proper UVB system that's been followed, but we don't mm -hmm. have a proper UVA component of that beyond broad spectrum. And that's where the Asian sunscreens really differ because they follow the PA system, which simply means protection grade of UVA rays, which is used to measure the SPF of a sunscreen. So they're not necessarily focused on UVB, which are the rays that are typically attributed to sunburn, but they're focused on UVA, which is uh, typically attributed to uh, to aging. Yeah, the, the aging and tanning, really. UVA is all about tanning. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the measurement ranking is based on the persistent pigment darkening, PPD reading, at two to four hours of sun exposure. Protective grades of sunscreen are often labeled as PA+, PA++, PA++++. So one plus, two plus, three plus, more. I think you can follow it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The more pluses means the more protection from UVA rays. According to the Japan Cosmetic Industry Association, UVA protection factor for each grading of PA. PA plus means the sunscreen can provide UVA protection with factor of persistent pigment darkening between two to four. So medium UV radiation protection. Plus Plus can provide moderate protection against UVA rays with a factor of PPD between 4 and 8. PA++ is designed for normal skin that's exposed to very strong UV radiation. It provides good UVA protection with a factor of PPD more than 8, and that is the highest grade of UVA protection currently available. You know, that does make you wonder, though, why, why isn't everything just PA++? I mean, why wouldn't you just put the highest? Yeah, and well, I don't know. I mean, why do people make SPF 8? I don't know. Um, I suppose on, on some level, though, it could be 
the way that it feels or something, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think we've talked that sunscreen actives, at least the organic ones or the chemical ones, you know, just intrinsically, they feel kind of greasy and oily or heavy. And you can only use them in certain types of formulations, like an water and oil emulsion. And um, yeah, so I guess that would play a role. But I think the the real question is, you know, are they better than the U.S. system or the EU system? And, you know, I don't know. They're just different. I think they're just focused on different things. And, you know, why isn't the world using one standardized system? I know there's also an ISO method in Europe, which is a little bit different yeah. uh, than what we do in the U.S. And it's different than what they do in Asia. And, you know, it would be great if there were a worldwide harmonious system. And I actually think some of the things I've read, they propose like kind of using all the bits and bobs from all three and, uh-huh. and that would create the perfect system. But, you know, even then there's probably some flaws. And, well, know, a, this is a big challenge. Just, you know, what what is the perfect test for this? You know, it's hard to know because... It depends on what type of skin there is, how much UV exposure you get, when in the year. There's just so the product it's so com- format. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's so complicated. So I can understand why uh, different systems sort of developed and why there isn't a harmonious system. Yeah. And also, also, I mean, we don't even have harmonized regulations about chemical safety throughout the world. So, I don't know. yeah. But bottom line, these sunscreens are safe. You don't have to worry about, you know, should I be using the plus or the SPF? I think you can use any and you're going to be fine. Uh, But of course, I think that also depends that are, um, you know, on the companies that are making the product, um, their manufacturers, how honest they are in making them because, you know, you could have a Pareto incident on your hands. Yeah. You you, you as a consumer, you... You know, all you can do is assume that companies are, you know, they're they're being honest and they're producing things. And I think if it's a bigger company, you can have a little more confidence. But, you know, even big companies, they have screwed up batches and runs. So you never know for sure as a consumer. But, you know, it, even a, a lower SPF sunscreen is better than no sunscreen at all. So <laughs> use your sunscreen, yeah. people. Use it and use one that you really enjoy the feel of. Exactly. All right, next question comes to us from Jackie. Jackie says, hello, thank you for your time. I've come across a few articles that detail the potential UVC effects that some compact fluorescent light bulbs uh, can have on your skin and eyes. Are there any ingredients that you can recommend, say zinc or vitamin C perhaps, uh, for protection? Wow, UVC, Valerie. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if UVC is reaching your skin, we've got bigger problems on this planet than than, uh, ingredients. That means the Van Van Allen belts have broken down and we're all screwed. Yeah. Yeah. So, guys, UVC rays don't reach the earth. Yeah. UVC is not a problem. Uh, I think what's happening here is, Jackie, that... There's been some bit of a misunderstanding. Now, UVC, there's there's three types of UV light. There's UVA, UVB, and UVC. The UVC ones are filtered out by the Earth's atmosphere, so they don't get to the Earth. UVB and UVA are what get to the Earth. But I think what you're asking about 
you're you're asking more about blue light, yeah, which is the yeah, visible light. It is. Um, it is a slightly longer wavelength than UV light, mm-hmm. and it's the kind of thing that you're going to get from your phone screens and from your computer screens and from fluorescent lights. Or if you're getting a facial, you may have it as a treatment for acne or hyperpigmentation at the end when they bloop this little light thing all over your face and you're like, what's happening? Is, is something going to happen? Have you know. ever have you ever had something like that done? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, once a month. <laughs> oh, there you go. I know. Well, you know, facials are are me time. Um, everyone sure, should sure. have self care and me time, and that's where I go and I, I get um, a really good shoulder massage and face massage with it to relax some of my face muscles. Um, and she does that little bloopy thing at the end, and I. You know, I don't want to tell her I don't think it works, but also <laughs> just in case it does work, I'm not going to stop her. Well, I have to say, done correctly, uh, this certainly is a, a treatment that has been demonstrated to have some effect, and I think the amount of uh, UV or the amount of blue light that you have to be exposed, it has to be controlled and it's like directed, and it's something that dermatologists use as a treatment, so presumably it works to some extent. Now, I don't know in your your facial what extra benefit you're getting by splashing the blue light all over your face. Maybe, maybe it just feels good. It's like, yeah. zap. <laughs> Sometimes she does a red one, too. That's nice. So the bottom line here is that it really does have an effect, uh, but there are a lot of products out there that are being marketed as ones that are going to protect your skin from the damage caused by blue light. Uh, and as you've asked, uh, some of those products are actually supplements and vitamins and beauty from within. Well, I have to say that I've, and I've looked, there is almost no evidence that your skin is going to experience negative effects due to the blue light that you normally are exposed to, like fluorescent lights or your phone or computers or, or your TV or whatever. Uh, there's what about just, your eyes? Well, your your eyes also, that's, that is a very good question, your eyes. Uh, the reality is the amount of exposure that you get from those devices in comparison to how much you get from the sun is just not even comparable. You get, there's like 10 times more of that comes from the sun. So it's like one-tenth as much from the sun uh, or from your devices that you would get from sun exposure. So... You know, even that, there's very little evidence that this represents a problem that anyone would have to worry about. Your eyes would probably be the most susceptible. Um, Your skin, I mean, you know, you you don't have to worry about it. So the bottom line is, uh, no, in my opinion, supplements like zinc or vitamin C, they're not going to help you at all. But fortunately, blue light isn't really a problem, so it's a win. Yeah. Well, and if you're wearing a sunscreen, um, you know, I, I think you should be covered. We have talked that some sunscreens can kind of creep up on that blue light protection right. range. Yeah. I've heard that the eyes, the reason the eyes are the biggest issue with blue light um, are not the actual blue light coming out, but the fact that you're staring, you're not blinking, ah. something's very close to your face. And I've heard that that's more negative than the actual like blue light itself. Which is why you should eat a lot of carrots. Just not yeah. enough to make your skin turn orange. But <laughs> Yeah. Or, you know, look away from the screen. Um, I do have these lab safety glasses that have a blue light film in them. And I actually have found they cut the glare down from my laptop screen. So sometimes I wear them. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's uh, if it's if it helps your eyes, I think that's good. Um, and uh, maybe it's even helping your face. The blue light, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, by the way, uh, Jackie, we didn't mean to laugh about the UVC, but it was just kind of funny. A um, little scientist joke, yeah, because when you learn about UVC, um, you know, in school. Sure. Yeah. I wonder if anyway. there's a UVD. <laughs> that's a like, where do you Where do you start? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, a, a regular Blu-ray. All yeah. right. <laughs> that's awful. Next. Next. Oh, terrible. Next question. Olga says, hello, Valerie and Perry. I'm a newcomer to the wonderful world of podcasting, and you are absolutely and without a doubt my favorite podcast ever. Well, that is nice. <laughs> I recommend it to everybody I know who's smart and interested in beauty products, which is a surprising number of people in my game. I'm a professor. Well, hello, Professor Olga. Hmm. So here's my reason for writing. Today, I heard a past episode on sunscreens and the best to use while exercising. Valerie, you mentioned some of the zinc oxide gives you a ghostly cast, and that is the question. Wait, was that the episode where I said how I admitted that I just sprayed it right in my face? You know, it might have been. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah, right. yeah. I don't do that anymore, people. But you know, usually. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Olga writes, "I have an olive Southern Mediterranean complexion, but am a diehard believer in sunscreens. Unfortunately, I can never find one that doesn't make me look grayish, greenish. So." Number one question, Valerie, or actually, so question number one, Valerie, what brand do you recommend that is effective, but wouldn't make me look well, grayish, greenish? Question number two, which I think a lot of people would want to have addressed, how to apply it. I've read a ton of articles, Vogue, InStyle, Allura, Self, you name it, but dermatologists cannot seem to agree. Some say before moisturizers, serums, makeup, others say after. Where do you as chemists stand on that issue? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of flossing before. <laughs> oh, wait. No, I'm and sorry. I like a... to floss after, <laughs> that but was before different... my mouthwash. <laughs> Don't floss with sunscreen, people. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, so question number one, what brand do you recommend that is effective but won't make you look grayish, greenish? The only ones that tend to make you look grayish, greenish, I think, are the ones that contain, we'll call them the mineral sunscreens, zinc oxide, titanium dioxide. And that is because they are physical white particles that sit on the skin and work by physically blocking rays from hitting your skin. They're often even called physical sunscreens. And sometimes this whitish cast can cause, you know, light to reflect off of this titanium dioxide or zinc oxide pigment particle. And it just, you know, doesn't look good. And then of course, if you there's these little micro spots of skin exposed in between. You can just have a really um, sickly, pale cast uh, to your skin. Well, I can see the I can see the grayish, so that's the white light like coming mm-hmm. through. What about the greenish? I what? think that's her skin tone underneath popping out. So she probably has like a yellowish sort of skin tone, mm-hmm. and then very this, warm skin tone. These mm-hmm. white ones are sort of a blue light reflector kind of a thing and blue and yellow make green. There we go. Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the first things you could try is looking for these organic or chemical sunscreens. They don't rely on those physical particles to provide the sun protection. So you could look for things like avobenzone and uh, octanoxine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't work in sun. I can remember ethoxy, methoxy, cinnamate. Cinnamate, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
octanoxate. Yeah. Anyway, all of those, it, anything but zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, you can try that. Um, or if you, if you're really stuck on using a zinc oxide or titanium dioxide based sunscreen, you can look for ones that have specific claims to reduce the white cast. Um, they have a certain particle size that they use, like a micronized titanium dioxide or zinc oxide. And these particles are so, so tiny and they come in different dispersions, kind of like the Shiseido dispersion uh, that was being worked on, where the particles are nicely spaced apart. They're not agglomerating together and, and making bigger particles. And that will help reduce any casting on your skin. Or you could even try a tinted sunscreen. So one of the ones I'm really loving right now is Elta MD has a tinted sunscreen, not affiliated with the brand, but I'm, I'm just really enjoying it right now. And I know a lot of other people are really enjoying it too, but having a tint cuts that white cast out because they're making it um, more skin colored. So whether you're um, dark skinned or light skinned, you can get different tints or even sometimes having just a light tint cuts out that white cast and diffuses the light a little more broadly. So you don't see anything uh, grayish or whitish. So you don't have to worry, even if it's not your skin tone, it should still work because it's removing the white particulate. You don't see white anymore and it'll diffuse the light better. Yeah. And smaller particles are less visible. So that's, mm -hmm. that's a key. So, yeah. So the, how to apply it piece, you know, I actually was uh, thinking about this the other day and maybe we even were joking about it a couple weeks ago, Perry, uh, people can't agree. And I would say it probably depends from my chemist perspective. It depends on what you're applying before or after and the type of sunscreen you're using. So for example, if you are using a, you know, organic or quote unquote chemical based sunscreen, um, I would apply that to the skin first, I would say, because it's, it's right there with your skin. It's going to set up and form this film directly on your skin. And then you can put your makeup over it. And oftentimes these, um, you know, and I just call them chemical base. I know it, you know, makes Perry irate, but <laughs> it's a consumer term, you know? Sure, um, sure. But yeah, anyway, yeah. these tend to be kind of heavier feeling anyway. So if you're using one, you're, you may not be using a moisturizer or a serum with it. Um, but if I were, I would probably put a serum on and then let it completely dry and then put the chemical-based sunscreen over it. But yeah. I definitely wouldn't put a moisturizer with it because I think that would disrupt uh, the film network. And then you could put your makeup over it. If you're using a titanium dioxide or zinc oxide-based sunscreen, I would also say before just because of the potential white cast, and then you're going to put your makeup on um, over it. But I would definitely put a moisturizer under that one because those tend not to be as um, occlusive or, or greasy feeling. They right. can be, but I don't think they tend to be. And they actually physically sit on the skin um, and, and you can put your moisturizer under it and you're okay. Um, so I would probably layer that one afterwards, but that's just me, you know, of course it depends on your skin and, and how much you want to put on and, and what you use and all that kind of stuff. And I think as far as what you'll notice as a consumer, now you could make an argument either way, right? But I think as far as what you're going to notice as a consumer is it's not going to make much difference. Um, if you're not putting on the right amount of sunscreen, you're not getting exactly the SPF that's on the bottle anyway. 
Um, and you're not going to notice if, you know, what we're talking about, these the differences that this is going to make, it's not going to take your SPF 30 and turn it into an SPF 2. You know, <laughs> it's you're talking, it, it might have been an SPF 30, and now it's an SPF 28 or something like that. Um, so the differences are not huge. Um, now, which way it goes, I, you know, I, I don't think that kind of testing has been done. So well, what if you use coconut oil? Is it going to add an SPF of two? I'm just, I'm, no, being, I'm being naughty, guys. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> People put coconut oil on their face? What? As SPF, they do. I, oh, I'm that's not right. making uh, it up. Well, yeah. anyway, I think I, I agree with Valerie. You know, follow, follow what Valerie has suggested or, you know, do what you like and don't worry about it. <laughs> do you know what would be awful, Perry? I think What's about that? this all the time. What if we get old and then studies show putting on this SPF was, was worthless for anti-aging. Well, <laughs> well, I think that is kind of the same answer that I give to people who ask me, you know, you run every day. What if you get, you know, 20 years from now, they find out that running doesn't actually help you live longer. I'm like, well, I, I like running. So. <laughs> Yeah. So if you like putting on sunscreen, it doesn't matter. Well, I, I do want to say, actually, I mean, we know UVA rays age your skin. That yeah. we know for sure. So I feel for like sure. from that perspective, you have a leg up. But as far as the amount of just, you know, incidental sun exposure that you have, like going to the post office or walking from your house to your car, um, that that was kind of more the comment, like, is SPF sure, sure. really helping there and all that incidental exposure? Are you... I usually wear driving gloves, um, and actually for the last year and a half, um, I, maybe my fingers got fat, but they don't really fit me anymore, and <laughs> they probably shrunk in the wash, but I've worn I'm going to go with the shrunk in the wash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, gosh, what if, you know, because I don't want old looking, they say the truth is in the hands, so I'm like, okay, better hide my hands while I drive. Um It'd just be interesting, like, is it going to pay off or is it silly? But we do know UVA rays age, so um, important to cover up. Yeah. All right, we got another audio question. This one comes to us from Sylvia. Hello, beauty brains. My name is Sylvia and I'm from Romania. So as I was struggling to apply the appropriate amount of sunscreen on my face this morning... It got me thinking that I have no idea how come it was decided sunscreen should be tested using 2 mg per centimeter square. I mean, that's a lot, and since no one applies this much, the test does not reflect a real-world use case. So I was wondering if you have uh, any idea what's the story behind this, and how come the testing criteria is not changed to better reflect the reality. Thanks a lot. Wow, a software engineer. Thanks for that question, Sylvia. And uh, you could tell uh, only a a computer type would ask a question about these kinds of details, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a great question because, you know, we've talked about it depends on, you know, the product format and what type of emulsion it is and all that kind of stuff. um, You know, it is interesting. The test is standardized, but the products aren't. So is it? accurate in the real world you know i specifically asked this question uh of another expert i was doing a webinar on sunscreens uh just the other day <laughs> wow mr webinar sunscreen guy <laughs> they're like perry are you researching for your podcast you rascal you <laughs> I, 
through the International Federation of Society of Cosmetic Chemists. I'm the education chair, so I get to do all these webinars. But we were specifically talking about sunscreen testing, and uh, and that question came up. It said, you know, uh, how reflective of real life are these actual sunscreen tests? Um, but first, the question of, you know, how did we get to the number two milligrams per centimeter squared? I have no idea. Well, I'm going to guess the, the number is, first of all, these these test numbers, they're, they're all kind of done arbitrarily at first. You know, chemists don't, they don't really know. So they're like, ah, let me just take a guess. So the number was probably arrived at, they were just guessing, you know, now the average, the average person is a certain size and they say, well, how much would you need to test if it, if you had like one ounce worth of product and mm-hmm. somebody used that? And, you know, if you assume that the average adult is like, I don't know, 5'4", and they weigh 150 pounds. Um, That's 163 centimeters or 68 kilograms. You know, this country was supposed to go metric many years ago, weren't you? Thanks, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, we were, we were supposed to go metric in the 80s, but that didn't happen. Um, so if you look at like the average amount of skin, that would be about one ounce to evenly uh, protect the uncovered area. And then that translates into the two milligrams per centimeter squared slipping back into the metric system because we're scientists, damn it. <laughs> so, you know, the, but the reality is that consumers use less than this. Uh, I mean, I try to use a lot and I, I'm lucky if I get a half ounce and I, I like fill my hand and I'm like, wow, I couldn't imagine using a whole ounce. Right. Well, according to a study published in the British Journal of Dermatology, this article entitled The Relation Between Sun Protection Factor and the Amount of Sunscreen Applied in Vivo, uh, they found consumers use about... 25 to 50% of that amount, actually. Mr. Cosmetic Chemist uses 1% of that amount. (laughs) But anyway, we won't go there. Does he get get sunburned? Yes. Oh, well, then he's not using enough. (laughs) I totally get it, though. You know, you've got that. So you get the spray thing, and you're supposed to, like, what, spray it in your hand and then rub it? But Yeah, he just, he doesn't like the way it feels. He says it's greasy. I, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah, well... Someday we might have advanced sunscreens that don't feel greasy, but until then, use your the sunscreen. The Shiseido, the Shiseido oh, one coming out. We'll yeah, see. That, that might be yeah. revolutionary. <laughs> we'll see. Well, so the, the testing criteria is what it is because it just works, right? As we were saying before, this isn't an exact science. Everybody's skin is different, and the amount of exposure that you're going to get, that differs depending on where you are on the planet type of skin you have is different around the world, uh, the, the time of year, the way the thing is formulated. So basically, there's not really a good sense of how do you make it more accurate. Say they say they you know cut in half the amount of sunscreen that was tested. Well, now all of that testing that we have historically, so that's not valid anymore. So, um, so you can't compare it anymore. But you know, when it comes down to it, it's a rough estimate, but it's that number because it that just kind of works in practice. It's kind of what they built the whole SPF system on. You yeah. know, that, that's what's crazy. It's like how did they make what a foot is? It's like they, you know, they came up with these units and a way to measure and a ruler and. 
it just is what it is. There's no going or a meter stick, you know, there's no going back. Um, the, the other big thing is again, so product dependent. If you are looking at a powder and you know, there's an SPF advertisement on it, SPF 50, there's, you know, a brand out there doing that. Are you really putting two grams of powder per centimeter squared on your skin? Yeah, I or excuse can't. me, two two milligrams per centimeter squared. That's a lot of powder. That is a lot and of powder. Yeah. Yeah, you're just not going to put that much on, so you're not really getting the advertised SPF protection. Uh, there's SPF, you know, rinse off products like shampoos. There's SPF wipes, and this FDA ruling we talked about. They're proposing that we define what product can be an SPF product because you're not going to get SPF from a body wash, right? Right, right. Um, and there, you know, there's no SPF testing available for the actual hair fiber. There's UV damage testing, but not SPF testing. So they just want to standardize it because again, you know, we have this method that was kind of developed and it is what it is and we can't change it, but um, it should reflect reality. When I do claims testing, it should reflect reality. That's just the, the integrity of it. So anyway, and it is what it is, I guess. It basically, it, it works. It might not be perfect, but it works. All right, we got, we got another question. This one comes to us from Tina. She says, hi, Beauty Brains. Love the podcast. Here is my question. As I was putting on my primer this morning after applying my sunscreen, I noticed that the primer contained grapeseed and safflower oil. It got me wondering... I use an oil-based cleanser balm or oil-based cleansing balm as the first step in my skincare routine to remove my makeup and sunscreen from the day. I've learned from you that like removes like, and I know I didn't state that very scientifically, but please forgive me. No, that is scientific. I, you know, I used to teach high school chemistry and even learning chemistry. They say like dissolves like. Yeah. Makes yeah, sense. I think that's scientific. Uh, you know, you don't have to talk about non-polars and polars and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> Anyways, uh, is my primer affecting the efficacy of my sunscreen and possibly making it less effective? I know sunscreen is the best anti-ager, so I don't want to do anything that is going to make it less effective. Thanks, Tina from Chicagoland. Hey, that's my hometown. I wonder if she's ever seen you out joggling. She would have said so, right? <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> And Chicago's a big city. Exactly. Um, yeah, so great question. Um, Grapeseed and safflower oils, by the way, are very lightweight and um, nice for skin. I hope you enjoy your primer. It's um, not the Balbasol oil, right? That you. <laughs> What's that oil you hate, hate so much? Oh, barrage. Barrage seed oil. Oh, yeah, barrage oil. Yeah, it's <laughs> just, it's very... You know, anyway, we won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> we won't. Um, no, great question. And I think we've kind of covered it in previous questions, but no, I mean, first of all, it depends what type of sunscreen you have, right? And how much you're applying. I think you're going to be fine. Yeah, I, I would, I would think that impact is going to be minimal if you can even notice it. So yeah, it's not like, um, you know, in the case of a oil-based cleansing bomb, you know, you're actually trying to solubilize what's on your face and you're massaging and you're introducing water to emulsify the makeup or sunscreen off your face. And in this case, you're just applying layer over layer. So um, I don't think you're necessarily uh, rubbing or, you know, wiping it off. You're kind of just double layering and I think you should be okay. Um, 
I don't think you'll notice any significant difference. I think if it SPF tested clinically, I, th I think you'd probably be, you know, very close. So I wouldn't worry too yeah. much. Unless it's done by some independent house that wants to get a lot of looks on <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> All right, we got one more audio question. This comes to us from Rachel. Hi, Beauty Brains. I have a question about sunscreens. Why do sunscreens with different formulations have the same SPF? I've been experimenting with different everyday body sunscreens to find my favorite, and I noticed that my Sunbum SPF 50 had the same four sunscreen ingredients as my Hawaiian Tropic Silk sunscreen, also SPF 50, but the Hawaiian one had lower percentages for the four ingredients. How can that be if both are SPF 50? Is the Sunbum one better because of the higher percentages? Thanks so much and looking forward to hearing your thoughts. All right, interesting. Uh... Yeah, I think just proof that... Um... You know, you can only really look at an ingredient listing and figure it out so much. You know, there's a lot of uh, people who are very good at looking at the back of a bottle and saying, oh, I've got this figured out. I know the 1% line. I know, I know this. I know that. And it's just an excellent case where a bottle doesn't reveal it all. Right. The way you put it together matters. You can't judge a bottle by its label. <laughs> indeed, indeed. This question about how do you use different sunscreen ingredients but get the same SPF? I mean, that's just, that's just, you can do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, the way you achieve SPF does not depend specifically on the exact raw materials you use, although you need to use the, uh, you know, sunscreen actives. But all of those actives have uh, a range of which. UV they're going to block better at um, or, or and worse at. And so the idea is you, com you can combine them in different ratios to get a broad spectrum or an SPF value. And so even if you use different actives, uh, they can still block the sun at the specific UV light. And sometimes, too, you may use some to stabilize each other and improve the efficacy of one. So avobenzone, for example, you almost never or should never see it alone. It will always have something coupled with it to help stabilize it and help make it be a better SPF active. And there's different combinations that can give you better results as well. Yeah, so there are a lot of things, as we talked about previously, that can affect the value that you get for an SPF. Of course, the ingredients is one thing. The amount of the ingredients is another thing. But also the way that they're put together, the size of the, the particles, if you're using the zinc or the titanium dioxide, the, the film former that you're using and how spread out and how thick that film is and how distributed the sunscreen ingredients are on that film – the plasticizers that go into it, and this, that means how flexible the uh, the film is going to be on your skin as you move, and that's going to could create gaps or you know ridges. Uh, there's a lot involved there, yeah. Even the emulsifier you choose to bring the oil and water phases together can make different particle sizes, and that will determine as well how everything yeah. distributes and what type of SPF value you can get, and even how well it protects in the UVA range as well. Yeah, so uh, as far as, you know, is having a higher percent better than a lower percent, it's not really that simple. I mean, it could be a 
general guideline, like more sunscreen in there, the higher the SPF value you're going to get. But that's only a guide. That's not always a rule. So on some level, no, the level is not indicative of the SPF. It's it's more to do also with how it's all put together. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, sunscreen effectiveness just depends on more than the ingredients and the percentages. There's a lot more involved. And I would say, again, focus on one you like using because one that feels good to you and you like to use it, you're going to use it more often and you're going to apply more of it and probably get better coverage that way. Well, Valerie, I know that uh, now I feel like going and putting on some sunscreen. I've got a a spray in there, which I'm not going to spray right in my face. (laughs) (laughs) Are you getting much sun? I heard it's snowy in Chicagoland. Oh, there's only about two feet on the ground right now, but (laughs) just because it's winter doesn't mean you don't need sunscreen. That is true. Well, that's all the time we have today. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you get a chance, can you go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And maybe next time or in the coming time, we're going to do another theme. What do we got? Maybe a hair care theme, huh? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. If you have a question, just record it on your smartphone. Email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we have a Facebook page. We also have a Patreon page. If you're interested in supporting us, you can go to patreon.com slash TheBeautyBrains and subscribe. That's going to help keep all of those pesky commercials out of our podcast. Boy, I tell you, I listen to so many podcasts. The commercials just click ahead, click ahead. (laughs) I mean... It's great that advertising can support podcasts, and that's one model. We prefer the model where uh, we're user-supported. And if you want to help support us, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. We also have occasional uh, patron-only events, and I think we're going to have one of those coming up in the next few weeks. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens! <laughs>